0: From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. And welcome to Straight Talk. As you can see, I am not Laurel Porter. I am Dan Haggerty. Thank you for being with us. I'm filling in for Laurel this week. We're going to take a look back today at the Valentine's Day weekend winter storm. You remember it well. It's the one that hit the Northwest pretty hard. We're going to talk about you know, what lessons have we learned. How can the state, how can Oregonians better prepare for a future emergency? The ice and the snow hit very hard in our region last month. It was historic. Governor Brown declared a state of emergency when the snow and the ice pelted the region. This was mid-February. It's been a long time since we dealt with anything like this, about 60 years since we've seen this kind of damage to our power infrastructure. When this inch of ice coated tree limbs, started knocking them down, they knocked down power lines by the thousands and left hundreds of thousands of people in the dark and without heat, and it was cold. You have to go back to 1962, to the Columbus Day storm, something that we called, we dubbed the big blow for its severe winds, to see this this type of of devastation on this scale. The question is, was this year's storm one of those once-in-six-decade anomalies, or are we likely to see similar storms as the planet faces climate change? What can the state and utilities do to better prepare for these sorts of things in the future? And as individuals, you and me, what is our responsibility to get ready? Joining me today, the Director of Oregon's Office of Emergency Management, Andrew Phelps. From Portland General Electric, Sarah Edmonds, Director of Transmission Services for PGE. And Director of Power Planning at the Northwest Power and Conservation Council, Ben Kuala. Uh, Qu- Qu- ben, how do I? I'm, I'm messing up the name already. Quella. Quella. We even practiced this before the show, and, and here I am screwing it up. Well, uh, how about that? That's a good start to the show. Okay, we're talking about a lot of messy things here, which was, uh, which which was this February storm. And I think we should start by talking about the snow and the ice that hit the region in February. And I'm just curious how you would describe it, Andrew. Maybe we start with you. And I'm I'm, I'm curious as you describe it if you think that the state was ready for something of this magnitude because sometimes it's it's almost impossible to prepare for something this extreme
1: yeah, dan I, I really appreciate that and I, I think looking back at the last 12 months especially in oregon dealing with the flooding that was historic in eastern oregon to start 2020 and moving into the pandemic then a catastrophic wildfire season and the labor day wildfires that devastated so much of our state Uh, It was just one thing after another. We've been in constant response and recovery mode for the last 12 months. Uh, But I think we had a lot of tools available to forecast that there was going to be a winter storm. Uh, The challenge of course with forecasting uh, here in the Pacific Northwest and Oregon in particular is knowing exactly where the snow is gonna fall versus where ice is going to accumulate. Uh, And sometimes the difference of a couple of miles or a couple of feet in elevation can make that difference. So while we were certainly forward-leaning, communicating with our partners across the board uh, throughout the state about the potential impacts, whether it was gonna hit the gorge, the Portland metro area, or further south down into the Salem area, uh, we were leaning forward and it was just a matter of responding to uh, where the impacts were most uh, severely felt.
0: Uh, Sarah, curious on on your end, um, considering that the power companies had just kind of dealt with the fires and we're still dealing with everything that's happening in the fires. And we'll touch on that in just a bit, but I'm wondering if, dealing with that helped in any way for the preparation the response or if it it, if it made things more difficult once the ice hit and this kind of this this new task was at hand
2: thanks dan there were very different events and we're going to talk a little bit later today about why that was so but for portland general electric this was a historically destructive and disruptive winter storm that challenged us in in many ways Uh, We had significant damage to our system. As you mentioned, we had waves of ice, wind, and snow, and this made it very difficult for us to quickly and safely deploy our crews to some areas of our system for 48 hours. Uh, We also saw widespread outages, as you've noted, across the state.
0: How many outages? We talk about widespread, and I know we were throwing numbers all over the place on the news. Uh, how, do we, how do we quantify that? What, what numbers were we looking at when we were actually considering people who had no power? The, the, fridge, the food in the fridge was going bad. The, the heat was off. People were freezing, yeah. looking for places to go. How many people were we talking about?
2: In total, we had 421,649 PGE customers that lost power, and about 100,000 of these experienced multiple power outages. Our crews out in the field restored power to over 750,000 customer outages. Chief ICE. Wow,
0: I, I, well, you know, you say that and it reminds me of something that was happening in my neighborhood. I lived in Lake Oswego, live there yeah. now, and that's what it was like in our neighborhood. People lost power and then, hey, we all celebrated the power came back on and then it was out again. Was that the story where you, were you people chasing that around, the, these outages, just chasing them around the state?
2: It, it was a very challenging time, and as, as we've noted, it wasn't necessarily one acute event. There were waves of ice, wind, and snow, and this made it necessary for us to restore and then potentially to restore again. The situation we had is where you've got ice adding potentially 1,000 pounds to the wire span, pole to pole, and the weight of that ice on the line and the falling trees and branches damaged those lines and took out our poles, uh, broke them or ripped them out in some cases.
0: Ben, I'm curious to get your, your initial thoughts on the storm and um, kind of what, what, what we should learn, I guess, from it. Initially, when, when, this, when, it, when it just happened, we're kind of recovering now.
3: Yeah, so I, I look at long-term planning and we look out far into the future and I think one of the things that we definitely need to learn from events like this or, or heat events that we've seen too is just that what has happened in the past doesn't necessarily set the boundaries for what we need to worry about as we plan into the future about what we need to do for the power system to make sure that power stays reliable and that events like this are, are maybe unavoidable but they're minimized.
0: You know, Sarah, one thing I think that, that I wanted to get a take on from you, and it's something that so many of our viewers wrote in, you know, let's talk about what happened. We, you get ice on tree limbs. Tree limbs then crumble and fall, and they, they hit power lines, or they knock over power poles, and you get this, this, this chain event of, of power being knocked out to tons of people, and it overwhelms crews that have to fix this stuff. And people started writing in saying, well, why aren't our power lines under the ground? Why can't we go and put them all under the ground? I, I was wondering if you could kind of address that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So undergrounding lines is often brought up, you know, I'd say at the start, there's no single solution here for how we make our system more resilient against these extreme winter events, extreme summer events, extreme climate events that we're seeing more often. Underground do go out. For example, a tree that falls, its root system can take out that underground line. We do have lines underground. Many of PGE's lines are currently underground today. This is a lot easier, of course, in new developments, but much more complex and potentially much more expensive for existing developments where we have to work around existing infrastructure like sewers and and so forth. There are other solutions that are worth considering in addition to ones like those. PGE in response to the wildfire events has increased the scope of our vegetation management program. This is the program that we use to manage the the trees in our system. We manage over 2 million trees along 12,000 miles of power lines. It's significant. We have this tree trimming program. It's currently on a three-year cycle. We're looking to move up to a more frequent cadence, potentially a two-year cycle We've also doubled the size of this tree vegetation management program double from 2017 to 26 million dollars in 2020. finally we're working with cities and municipalities to educate customers about the right kind of trees to plant along these power lines and how far
0: so Andrew give us a little bit of an idea of exactly what the state's office of Emergen- emergency management does when there's a big disaster when suddenly you start getting calls that everything's going to heck in a handbasket and you need to do you need to help and coordinate what exactly happens when as far as the state is concerned
1: Dan, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said coordinate. That's really what we do at the state level. We coordinate information sharing, uh, making sure that the folks that are impacted by an emergency or a disaster have timely and accurate information so they can make good decisions to take care of themselves and their families. We also work to support our local partners. Uh, emergencies in this state are led at the local level, uh, and once they become exhausted or overwhelmed, that's when the state resources typically step in. Uh, This was a fairly long-term event. The initial impacts, of course, began uh, President's Day weekend with the power outages and impacts to our transportation infrastructure. But we knew, uh, based on our conversations with our our partners at the utilities, that it was going to take days and days to restore everyone's power. So we began uh, ramping up for a much longer-term response than just that weekend. So as our local partners, the sheriff's offices, the search and rescue teams, began operating for their 48, 72, uh, 96-hour operational periods, we began looking at the resources that the state can bring to bear, and one of those resources is the National Guard. Now, the Oregon National Guard and the men and women who serve in the National Guard, uh, they're not a quick response force. These are folks who have jobs, they have families, uh, and everyone was dealing with these impacts, especially in the Willamette Valley and Portland metro area. So to be able to ramp up that resource to then backfill and give the local responders a little bit of a a break takes a little bit of time. But given the impacts of the disaster and how long uh, the impacts were experienced by Oregonians, uh, it worked out pretty well to have the guard folks Come on, and then augment uh, the ongoing efforts to do welfare checks and deliver some critical supplies to folks who uh, weren't able to go out and, and get those supplies themselves.
0: Could the National Guard been brought out sooner? I think there was some criticism that they, I know you're you're explaining a delay that, that people aren't ready to run out the door sure. right away. But there was some criticism that they that the, the there was too much of a wait to get that process started.
1: Yeah, as an emergency manager, uh, and I think all first responders or emergency responders feel this way, we always want to do more. Uh, and, and very often we're constrained by resources, by accessibility, uh, and by pacing ourselves. If you throw everything you have at the response in that first 24, 48-hour period, you don't have any gas left in the proverbial tank to respond to those folks on day five or, or day nine like we experienced with this disaster. Uh, So while we wanna make sure that we're meeting the needs of the most critically impacted or the most vulnerable Oregonians, it's a little bit of art and a little bit of science to make sure that we're uh, able to respond throughout the disaster and not just that first 24 or 48 hour period.
0: Ben, it was a bizarre time for a lot of reasons. Um, For the people who did have power and were able to watch some things on TV, it was strange to see what was happening in Oregon with all these ice storms and then seeing kind of the same story playing out in Texas. Now, I say the same story, but that's not exactly accurate, is it? Because these were two different stories when it comes to the power grid and kind of the the headaches that were happening for the people in Texas compared to what we were experiencing in Oregon. And because those stories were kind of going on simultaneously, I was hoping maybe you could give us an explanation of why they are different and, and, and kind of the way things played out.
3: Yeah, Texas is a very different power grid than what we have here in Oregon. Oregon is connected throughout the entire West. So you're connected all the way from Canada down into Mexico. And and it's a huge area that's covered. Texas is its own grid. It's It's got some connections, but it's not synchronized to either the Western electric grid or the Eastern electric grid. Um, and so when there were issues in Texas, what, what we saw was that there was generation that was unable to respond or went out because of cold weather and demand exceeded what they had forecasted. And in that, that area, what was happening was a big power supply problem. There weren't enough generators available and ready to meet the need of the demand for electricity that was happening within the state. Talk about and some- And in Oregon, when we had the events, it, it wasn't that situation. There were enough generators available to meet the needs, but there were a lot of local issues that happened as part of the storm and the events that you guys have talked about already.
0: Now, one of the one of the things we've been covering a lot on KGW has been the move to to alternative power in the state and the, and turning away from coal. And one of the concerns from some experts is that as we make the transition, it's it's not clear that the need is going to be met met based on the way the technology looks now. And the hope is as we make these um, uh, investments into the new infrastructure, when it comes to solar or wind or various types of energy sources, that we will eventually meet the need as we kind of climb that mountain. But for the people who are concerned, as they saw what what had happened in Texas, when the power wasn't there, when they needed it, how's the discussion going now as we move away from power and, and start to rely on other sources of energy in the state of Oregon?
3: There's no doubt we're in a transitional time, and that there are new power resources coming into the grid that just work differently than what we've historically had. Um, I I think that it's a, a time that's very interesting for our industry, um, but we have to plan for it. We have to look at what those things provide, and I absolutely believe it's possible to have a reliable power system that in many different ways. And so. The technologies like wind and solar can be hardened against cold. There are ways that they work really well within the system. And as we're adding them in, they're not the only resources that are out there in the grid. There's a lot of other things in the Northwest, including our hydro system, that are part of the support for keeping load and the the need for electricity and the ability to, to make sure that we have the resources there to serve it, kind of balanced out day to day.
0: Okay, thanks to all the guests. We're going to take a little break. As we come back, we're going to discuss the effects the, hot, the, the fires had over all of this and the anticipation, as, as terrible as it sounds, uh, for the big one and the discussion around that and how to keep people safe and keep the power on. So we'll be back right after this. And welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Dan Haggerty. Welcome to our guests again, Andrew Phelps, Ben Quiala, and Sarah Edmonds. Thank you so much for talking to all of us today kind of about our power infrastructure dealing with some natural disasters and what we've learned from the most recent ones and uh, how we intend to move forward. Now, Sarah, uh, with PGE, I kind of want to start with you and talk about the two natural disasters that really hit this area hard, the fires and then the massive ice storm. We talked about the ice storm a lot in the first segment, and I was wondering, you mentioned something about how different that was from responding to the fires, and I'm hoping you could elaborate on that.
2: Absolutely so in this case as I mentioned before the chief culprit was the ice and the the weight of the ice on our wires and what that did also to the trees and branches. Uh, This resulted in quite a significant challenge to our system and also created extremely dangerous conditions for our crews to get out to some of our hardest hit areas during the winter storm for about a 48 period. I'd like to contrast the impact of the winter storm to the 2020 Labor Day wind and wildfire event. And in that, the damage for these current winter storms was actually 10 times the amount of damage from the events that we saw in September. More and more, we're seeing these kind of extreme weather events um, around the country, but also here in Oregon, due in part to climate change. And at PGE, we're looking at all the things that we can do to our system to harden it, to make it more resilient under all of these different varied circumstances. But it is a challenge, and and here's an example. We have a tree wire that we can use. This is a specially heavily insulated wire that's much more resilient against wildfires, smoke, and heat. But it adds weight to that wire. And when you add weight to that wire, you create another condition where in a winter storm, that additional weight is less resilient in a winter storm event. So a lot of challenges here, but ones that we're actively looking at.
0: There's, there's a lot of discussion around how to protect these more rural areas from the power lines being knocked down in a certain situation and starting a fire. I know that there's a lot of research being done and a lot of, uh, lot of things being done by power companies to keep this from happening. And some of the techniques are you know turning power off during big wind events, things of that nature. What is the discussion currently in your industry and at PGE about this sort of danger?
2: Well, I mentioned earlier that I think the key here, and this is where the winter storm and what we saw over Labor Day kind of come together, which is a vegetation management program. This is really a centerpiece of dealing with the dangers of extreme weather events and what can happen to trees that have such an impact on our power lines. We have been working really hard on that vegetation management program, looking to increase its scope, increasing its funding and also working with cities and municipalities. And that's a really important partnership because it's also a partnership with our communities about how we're gonna manage the existing trees, but also what we're gonna do with new trees that we plant so that we're better ready for the future that's coming.
0: Ben, so California, they often deal with the wildfires and rolling blackouts. What is the future for Oregon and Washington, you think when it comes to those, those same elements?
3: Yeah, I think what we look at is um, a situation where we certainly have seen wildfires affecting the ability to move electricity around the grid. So we talked earlier about how the western grid is a much bigger machine than the Texas one. Part of that is there's a lot more areas that might have exposure for these sort of events where you have dry events, you have fires, and and that affects our abilities to move uh, energy from one place to the other. But we also have a lot of plans in place to try to make sure that that doesn't cause problems throughout the grid. So if there are things going on in California, there are plans in place to make sure that the power stays reliable in Washington and Oregon.
0: Okay, so we've already talked about two of the scary things that can happen around here, ice storms and fires. Let's end it with the trifecta and talk about a massive earthquake. All right, let's talk about the big one because it is something that is a, it's always kind of a looming potential threat to this area, and it's something that we talk about on the news and the people who live here or uh, you know, have things together in their garage, ready as a go bag, and they're ready and prepared for this as they should be. But there is this this new thing, this Shake Alert, that I, I was hoping, Andrew, you could talk to me a, a little bit about. That by the time this airs will be available to people. Can you explain a bit about what this is?
1: Yeah. So Shake Alert, it's based on technology that's been around for several years. Uh, the Shake Alert warning system has been live in California for about a year and a half. Uh, and on the 10-year anniversary of the Japanese Tohoku earthquake, a shake alert became available here in Oregon. And what this does is provide uh, seconds, uh, potentially tens of seconds to folks uh, of advance notice of shaking reaching your location. Now, it's not an earthquake prediction tool. What it does is it senses much smaller waves from an earthquake uh, and sends a, a warning through your cell phone, uh, provided you haven't disabled your emergency alerts. And we want to make sure folks keep those alerts. Uh, enabled on your phone uh, to to provide some warning and give you a heads up to let you know that an earthquake has been detected and you need to take protective action which uh, our recommendation is to drop cover and and hold on getting underneath something sturdy Uh, every disaster uh, that we experience uh, we have a benefit if we can get a little bit of warning so uh, whether it's the wind blowing the earth moving or the waters rising being able to take some protective actions in advance can really make a difference between uh, being a disaster victim and being a disaster survivor and that's what we want to see disaster survivors
0: well yeah i think a lot of people i remember at first at first we started talking about this people would write in and say well what's what's 10 seconds going to do to help and i remember thinking A lot. (laughs) I would like to have 10 seconds to prepare for something like that. What do we have to do? Do people have to download this? I know because, for instance, if I get an Amber Alert on my phone, I don't have to download an app or anything like that. That's just something that's in my alert section of my phone. How does this work for people who are gonna be watching this and saying, I I want this, I want this on my my iPhone or smart device?
1: Exactly, Dan. Uh, it, It uses that same technology that Amber Alerts use. Uh, to provide that messaging based on your location and your enabled cellular device to send that notification. Uh, there are a couple of apps that are coming on the market that will also be uh, able to be downloaded to provide uh, warning as well uh, but generally speaking you don't need to do anything. Uh, the cell phone providers, Google, they're actually building this technology into the devices themselves so again as long as you can go on your phone make sure that application, uh, your emergency notifications are enabled Uh, When that earthquake is detected, you'll get it. And also, as we do future tests of the system using the wireless emergency alert system, you can also choose to enable tests. That's going to be really important to help us when we do these tests to gauge the efficacy of the system. So as we head into the summer, we'll begin planning our initial tests of uh, earthquake early warning using the wireless emergency alerts uh, and uh, hope folks will enable that on their cell phones to help us uh, gauge how effective the system is.
0: Now, this area is no no real stranger to smaller earthquakes uh, I, of course when we talk about the big one we're talking about something that would be catastrophic and I was wondering Sarah when it comes to earthquakes um, the more I, I guess moderate ones that that are uh, more more willing more likely to hit here um, are is PGE prepared for that uh, what what happens there and, and we have about a, a minute minute 30 left here
2: no I think things like What happened on labor day the winter storms the threat of a potential earthquake be it moderate to to big really requires us to really hone our focus on resiliency and hardening we do that in concert with uh, a much larger body of stakeholders in terms of what that should look like i think the challenge here like all things is we're looking on the one hand to make the system as resilient as we can at pge we're doing a number of things um, to deal with the potential for an earthquake event everything from looking at our 24 7 operation center and where to best place that and how to make sure that that is resilient and sustainable and can ride through an event like that down to even small things like business continuity plans for the different departments in the company we do all of this with the mind towards making sure that we can get customers power back on to keep them safe, to make sure the power is reliable.
0: Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you to Andrew and Ben, all of our guests here today. We appreciate you watching and listening. Don't forget, this is also a podcast. You can download it anytime in your app store. This is Straight Talk. I'm Dan Haggerty. We'll see you back here next week.